0: I didn't want a son. Part of my problem was that all those things little boys seemed into, the trucks, the fire engines, dinosaurs, no thank you. But the main reason I never wanted a boy was because as a Jew, I knew I'd feel pressure to get him circumcised, pressure from myself and from others. And I just didn't know what I thought about that. Fortunately, God or the universe was on my side. Less than two years after my wife and I were married, she gave birth to a healthy gray-eyed little girl. And less than two years after that, another girl. And two years after that, another, and three years after that, another girl. It seemed that I had dodged the Moyle's scalpel. But then, never ones to leave well enough alone, my wife and I had a fifth child, and this one was a boy. And from the moment we found out, I thought, oy vey, what are we going to do? Because on the one hand, I'm a big one for children's rights. I mean, in principle, nothing would seem more important to me than the sanctity of a little, helpless, innocent child's body. On the other hand, I did feel this strong sense that as a Jewish boy, my son should be circumcised. Part of it was just my reverence for tradition. I'm a big one for doing things just because they've always been done. Circumcision has always been a marker of Jewish boys. One of the things that reminds us that we're not like other people and don't want to be. And I'll confess that part of it was my reluctance to be one of those Jews who think that we've moved past all those old superstitious rites. I didn't want to imply that I thought I was somehow better than, than those other observant Jews. I want, to, I want to stand in solidarity with all of the people. And circumcision is one of those things that unites all of us, from the most observant to the totally secular over several millennia. I mean, let me put it this way. If the anti-Semites ever come from my family and tell us to drop our drawers, I don't want an intact penis to save me. No, screw that they can tell me to line up with my fellow Jews. My wife wasn't having such a heady mix of profound thoughts. She was just postpartum and scared and worried and torn about what to do. And eventually she just said, you make the decision. She left it in my hands. Thank God I found Dr. Emily Blake, a moyle whom I really liked. As it happened, she was the daughter of my childhood pediatrician, Arnold Blake. And that seemed like a good omen. She gave me a list of things to buy, wine, topical anesthetic, baxitracin, to challah, And then, eight days after our son was born, she showed up and circumcised him. And we invited a lot of people, and we had bagels, and my fellow podcasters even came. And would you believe it, they brought a recorder to the bris.
1: We
2: rejoice with gratitude for the privilege of
3: bringing this child into our ancestral covenant.
0: I recently went back and listened to the tape, and it confirmed what I remembered, which was that, in the end, it was actually a lovely occasion.
4: This has never been known as an easy tradition to do. It is, I always acknowledge, pretty really difficult to invite a stranger into your space with a knife. And, your son to <laughs> and I know that it brought up moments in the last eight days when you really kind of struggled about whether we can do this or not. But I think you also noticed that he got through it with a lot of love and gentleness, and, and that's because of the amount of love that's in
5: this room.
0: Now, as for our son you don't hear his voice on the recording at all because would you believe it? He slept through the whole thing. So, is this a story of all's well that ends well? Well, mostly. But it wouldn't be completely honest to me to stop right there. The story goes on. A couple days after the briss, I opened David's diaper and saw a kind of unusual amount of blood. And I started to panic. What if something had gone wrong? What if he was infected? I looked everywhere on his body, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I thought, what if he gets gangrene and loses his penis? I mean, these things do happen. Every year, somewhere around the world, a few circumcisions go wrong on Jewish boys and on Gentile boys. I think some of us have heard the horror stories. As I looked for where the blood was coming from, I finally realized it was coming from his belly button where the umbilical cord had been cut. And as other dads and moms know, it's pretty common in the week or two after a baby is born for there to be some bleeding from the belly button. And I thought, phew. Penis okay. But the next day I found myself kind of short of breath. I was walking through downtown New Haven and I had to sit down and, and lean against a building and kind of put my head between my legs. I was having a panic attack. What was going on? And I realized if something had gone wrong with this penis, I'd have had no one but myself to blame. And it terrified me to think of how I'd ever live with myself. For the few days after that, I was totally preoccupied with this anxiety. I was consumed with morbid fantasies about the disaster that I was convinced we had just narrowly averted. I had put my son in harm's way. I was the worst dad in the world. Now, eventually, I got over that and I stopped thinking about it. These days, I change his diaper. I don't think about it. I'm happy with our decision most of the time. I now think of the briss as actually one of the great days of my life, except for those days when I think, I'm not sure I would do that again. I really don't have any way of resolving these tensions. Except, of course, to make a podcast about them. So welcome to Unorthodox's circumcision episode. Over an hour of Jews talking about Brit Mila, the ritual of circumcision. We will talk to a moyle, my son's moyle as it happens. We'll hear the crazy story of the British royal family and the legends that surround its men's penises. And we will, okay, I'm gonna cut to the chase. Yeah, I said cut. There's more and it's a great episode. So join us as Unorthodox gets circumcised. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Leah Leibovitz. The circumcised Leah Leibovitz. The circumcised Leah Leibovitz. And Stephanie Butnick.
6: Hi. hi. Reg- regular hi. <laughs> regular standard greetings today.
0: No descriptor, no adjective, no modifier. Um, some of us have been modified. Some of us have not. And that, in fact, is the story of this episode. We've been talking for quite a while about doing a circumcision episode uh, because it's apparently a big part of Judaism, from 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 what I hear. So, so <laughs> just a little bit. So it is. Uh,
6: so this is like actually a serious matter. So I want us to just get all the brisk puns out of the way. Oh, all the cut circumcision it out! stuff. <laughs>
7: No. Mark, that was very impressive. That was good. That Your pun game really has improved. You like that? I you like love that. It. You, so, what do you got for me, Leo? I I will only say that when my uh, son was born, Stephanie Podnick prepared the best gift I've ever received.
6: <laughs> oh my god, I totally forgot which, about that.
7: Which was the bris kit, uh, which contained
6: <laughs> okay, I forgot about a this. Band aid. I also like right? didn't know you guys that well at the time. A, a little gauze
7: pad. So what it else was, was in there? a
6: first aid, a red first aid kit that I <laughs> printed out on it, like picture of a, a brisket, a brisket. The food and then i and i wrote like bris kit and inside oh my god this was so inappropriate because i just like brought this inside <laughs> was amazing like, it was like uh, some baby things a little tiny bottle of vodka like a fake pair of scissors um i forget what else maybe like a pacifier or two i didn't know what babies needed or used <laughs> and i just brought it to your like lovely bris well the it,
7: vodka uh was well used. Uh, inappropriate, like
0: but maybe not as inappropriate as our producer, Josh Cross, sneaking a recorder in his pocket into into my son's uh, bris uh, on the second day of Russia. We all do
6: the things we do for love. I take <laughs> the half
7: responsibility for that. <laughs> Cause it's like, do it.
6: Do it My favorite part of the tape is like you can hear Liel. Like Liel got super Hebrew at that moment. He's like Ugh, uh, uh, <laughs> And you could like hear it on the
7: tape. <laughs> all, all the guttural yeah. e- expectorating sounds. I think for somebody prayer. who wants to give
0: a big donation, we'll give them the unedited version of that the tape. Uncut like version. all forty minutes of that tape.
7: But you know For the correct price, we'll recreate <laughs> The whole scene, minus the cutting, but you know, we could all congregate again.
0: Sure, absolutely. Bagels. So, this is this uh, kind of extraordinary thing that I just went through. We heard a little bit about that. And and Liel's been through it, obviously, with, with his son's birth uh, a, a few years back. Uh, Stephanie, do you. And with you, his own penis. And we, though I hope you don't remember that. No, I don't. No, I don't either. But the photos look lovely. Are, there are
7: photos from your breasts? <laughs> of course. Of you? I, I'm not that old. It's a selfie. <laughs> a camera has been invented by <laughs> 1976. I just didn't, know? I
0: don't know. It's. Yeah. Fi- I, I'm wondering where one
7: points was the camera. Was it a grand affair? It was a very grand affair. It was in the fanciest hotel in Herzliya, the Danielle by the beach. Oh
6: my God. Uh,
7: and it was It was grand.
6: <laughs> I love that.
0: But Stephanie, you're in some ways uh, the outsider to this conversation. Indeed. Um, wait, as I discussed, from the moment that Sid and I were expecting our first child, it was something I thought about. I don't know that I'd given too much thought to it before that, but it is now lived in my life for a dozen years as this thing that I think about periodically. Do you think about it
6: at all? Well, it's amazing. No, I did not think about it. Every time it's sort of come up on the show, I've dodged it because I'm just like, whatever. You know, I, the, I've been to Briss's growing up. I remember my, one of my first like really specific memories of a Briss was my cousin, one of my cousin's bris in Boston. And I remember... Going to it and then realizing I was like kind of sitting up front and I was like six or six. I don't know what the math was, but I just remember thinking like, oh, this is a weird thing that we do. But the amazing thing is that the bris is something that like for the most part you never think about. I, th- I would say pretty much across the board, I will speak for most Jews on this until all of a sudden it's the biggest decision of your life and your newborn infant's life. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are starting to have kids and it's like all of a sudden towards the end of the pregnancy, you're like, oh, shit, I have to find a moil. I have to like do this huge thing. And it's it's something that I don't think we contemplate day to day in our lives till suddenly it's this massive thing that we have to do.
0: And so, I mean, I have to ask you at some point might have a son and you're you're getting closer to that decision and you have friends kind of, you know, putting the question front and center. Have you thought about it at all? No, no, no.
6: I've committed to this episode and preparing for this episode. That is like <laughs> the extent.
7: I hope you don't think about it until you have to think about it. And then you'll think about it on this show. Oh, yeah. And we'll have like a talent search. It'll be like, like my am- wedding. Take America's soon. next moil. <laughs> like we'll have just a whole thing to choose. To, it would be great.
6: But so I assume like this is not something that is present in the day to day lives of most Jewish or non-Jewish men who have been circumcised, except for, you know, like the fringe few who say it scarred them forever and right. ruined their so life.
0: There is this very strange movement of people
7: called intactivists. I've interviewed, uh, <laughs> I've interviewed, and and we should be, we should be clear here that- I'm, um, by the way, 85% sure that they came up with like the punny name first and then it's like, what could that movement be about? <laughs> <laughs> ah, penises.
0: <laughs> and I should say, by the way, that there are, there are many people who don't circumcise or who are opposed to circumcision and, and some for medical reasons and some for human rights reasons who are not in the camp of extreme anti-circumcision activists who call themselves intactivists.
7: That's such and a they, great name, though. They are the they are yeah. the fringe. They're they good. join the people who don't go to the or, uh, to the dentist called the plactivists.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um God, everyone's really bringing their A game today. And the intactivists sometimes have their um, their Winnebago out in in Union Square in New York, not far from the Lubavitchers' right. uh, mitzvah tank. By the way, they the, rumble. Uh, the
7: anti mitzvah uh, and tank. Some, and
0: they publish books, and I have one on my shelf that include essays by men who say things like, "My lifelong." Um, uh, bipolar disorder or um, anxiety or, you know, uh, peanut allergy or whatever was caused by my bris. I mean, there are people- Penis
7: allergy. <laughs>
0: there are people with, you know, who, and there's there's clearly I think some, um, you know, if you meet them, there's, they don't seem well. Uh, but I would say that except for that community of people who will say that that they have encoded it, they've encoded a certain amount of trauma in, in their penises and brains. Um, most men, no, you never, ever, ever think about it. And and so, um, you know, for me, I, like you, was sort of gobsmacked by parenthood in that sense, Stephanie. But I mean, Leo, did you ever
7: have a thought when you knew you were going to have a son? See, this is this is really, I think, when faith kind of comes in. I don't think about how different the ways we see the world actually are on the sort of like, you know, ontological... You mean the three of us? The three of us, yeah. Or, or you know, people in general on the sort of like deep ontological level until a question like that comes along. Because for me, not only was it never a question that I dealt with for more than three seconds, but the notion that it might be a question, while intellectually I understand completely, emotionally I respect it. But it really, I think, calls to the fore the difference between really going through life, forget like observance, right? But like going through life as as someone who is primarily motivated or moved or geared towards Faith, right? Because, you know, for me, the, the, the essence of, of what we have going on here is— you On know, this podcast? The, on, on this podcast, on this planet, is, is love of God and fear of God. Uh, but it's all very Him-oriented. I mean, at no point do I assume that I even have the right <laughs> to question— this commandment. Uh, It's something that we're told to do, therefore we do it. Uh, Doesn't mean we don't get to think about it. Doesn't mean we're blind or dumb about it. Doesn't mean that we don't kind of analyze it or reflect upon it. But all that is in retrospect. I mean, all that is sort of commentary on the main act to which we're completely beholden. It is
0: interesting because when we were all growing up— the vast majority of American men, Jewish or Gentile, were circumcised, mm-hmm. and there was this period of fifty or sixty years where that was the case, from sort of the early to mid twentieth century until right. pretty much yesterday. And so, in America, uh, in particular, for white males, uh, for white and and for white males born in hospitals, circumcision was the norm. And all of a sudden, sometime around last Tuesday, um, a lot of the circles in which we travel, which is to say the you know the the Whole food shopping circles. Circumcision ceased to be the norm among Gentiles, and include and and among a lot of Jews. And we're very quickly moving back to that place where it's going to be like, "Holy cow, you have a Jewish penis." That's a strange thought for me. Yeah,
6: I was trying to think about this and whether I'd whether like the issue of circumcised versus uncircumcised was ever anything that like came up among my l- girlfriends, like if we, that was something we chatted about. Basically, in in preparing for this episode, I did you know as a journalist does. You um, did your research. I texted my friends and I was like. Was this a thing we ever like chatted about? Was this a thing that ever came up when you were describing someone you were dating or someone you had, you know, spent the night with? And it kind of was and wasn't. Like, I don't think it, the best answer I got from an unnamed friend was, <laughs> it's more of an aesthetic thing. If you are used to something, then anything new is always a surprise. I also got, it's really hard to tell the difference. Then I got, a, there's a whole like group text chain that got, you know, that says, Steph, just look it up. and then i got a bunch of diagrams of the difference um someone sent me this one they were like it's the turtleneck and i think it
7: to to listeners at home stephanie's holding up her phone with a diagram of penises cut and uncut well
6: i just didn't want to google
7: it I mean, the other thing that kind of baffles me is this this is a really joyous not to sound like you know a person who's kind of standing in the street corner and rambling, but like this is a really joyous mitzvah. this is this is a great occasion. This is a celebration of welcoming a son into the Jewish people. And the fact that even those of us who choose to do it uh, have so opened the door to the kind of anxiety narrative, right? I, I get that it has elements to it that are disconcerting. You'll, you'll acknowledge that? <laughs> At the same time, every single fucking Jew in the history of Jews... Jewish male. has done this. That that every is the Jewish inter- man have done this. That is so, the interesting thing
0: about the the radical anti-circumcision people where they talk about, you know, it creates trauma and it does this. It does that. It's like, wait a second, we actually have, we, we we can run this study because there have been several thousand some, years some, some thousands of, men of years, to, who've had this done who by and large are not, you know, dysfunctional underachievers. <laughs> so right. we've actually run the natural Have you study. seen the
6: Nobel Prize
0: <laughs> statistics? <laughs> <laughs> the, the
7: Venn diagram of circumcised penises and uh, Academy Awards and At Harvard Nobel Business penises. School
0: entering class.
7: It's really the, great. The,
6: the thing that comes up a lot is like this is something you do to your child. This is something that's part of the argument against it is this was something that was done to me something that I did that you not do for
7: your child. It's a great pleasure and honor. But it's for say, someone hey, who man. feels
6: conflicted about have it having happened to them, they would see it as something that, as a newborn, they were not able to consent to. So that is part of the argument do you against you think, it. However,
7: that it, it also like reflects the kind of Deeper anxieties that we have about being Jewish and in being general. visibly
6: Jewish, or how about right. I mean, in certain ways, visibly. not not to the naked eye, so to speak. But no question about it. I think it reflects all sorts
0: of anxieties. But enough of this dicking around. We have a great show for you today with lots of perspectives on circumcision. We are going to be talking with Moyle, in fact, the Moyle who did uh, my son David's bris, and also with Sarah Fredman Ader, an Orthodox woman who recently uh, had a boy, and we'll talk about her feelings about her son's. Briss. Uh, also with Chaim Leiter, a mohel from Israel who's going to talk about the work that he does over there. Lizzie Skernick, the mother of a uh, not so young son anymore, but a few years ago, she herself had to cross this bridge and she'll talk about her feelings. And we are going to conclude with a uh, a, <laughs> a, a young man named Christian who, as an adult, for reasons that had nothing to do with religion, decided to undergo a rather late in life circumcision. But before we get to any of that, circumcision is not of interest only to the Jews. No, sir. In fact, in the United Kingdom, there is an urban legend, maybe true, maybe not, that the men of the royal family are unusual for Englishmen circumcised. This has been the fodder for many, many tabloid stories every time there's a new royal baby boy in, uh, in, in Great Britain. And we have sent our ace producer Noah Levinson out into the field to get the goods on
8: the royal family's family jewels. Whenever the gestation of a new baby in the British monarchy is announced, a slew of breathless press attention typically follows that seems to reveal more about the makers and consumers of royal news than about the princely embryo itself. Case in point, in 2013, when William and Kate, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, announced the imminence of their first child, a boy... The first new royal kid in the mix in over 30 years, one very private decision of theirs became the focus of some very entertaining public speculation. The question everyone and their rabbi wanted to know, would the future king retain his foreskin? We have, from the Daily Beast, To snip or not to snip, will baby Cambridge be circumcised? MSN.com, whether the royal baby is getting the royal snip is our new obsession. My favorite, though, from Algeminer. Britain wonders if baby prince will be circumcised. Prince Charles, snipped
9: by Royal Moyle. You know, I don't know why royalty itself is is the focus of such um, eager attention. But um, people love stories about royalty, and um, obviously something that involves the genitals of royalty will have the additional um, factor of bringing sort of sex into the matter.
8: Dr. Robert Darby is a medical historian from Canberra, Australia, and the author of A Surgical Temptation, The Demonization of the Foreskin and the
9: Rise of Circumcision in Britain. Reminds me of a competition that was once done for the most sensational newspaper headline, which um, had to involve crisis, royalty, sex and religion. And um, the winning entry was, I think, something like, Sex Change Bishop in Mercy Dash to Palace. And I think it's that kind of attitude which explains why people want to read these stories and why newspapers want to publish them. Naturally, the clickbait
8: industry was all over this particular royal crisis of sex and religion. And in the lead-up to the birth of the future Prince George, Dr. Darby finds himself reading all of this speculation, and he notices one particular claim getting repeated a few different ways in a few different publications. The claim is that routine circumcision, once common in the British middle and upper classes, but now largely abandoned in that country, has a long place in the history of royal child rearing. Considering he literally wrote the book on circumcision's history in Britain, it's exactly the kind of thing the professor can't not look into. Um, I had
9: dimly heard this story about the um, British royal family circumcising their boys. I didn't give it any credence at the time, but I did want to look into it. Um, but I sort of ran out of time, and um, I couldn't find clear documentation, um, so I sort of let that go. When the issue um, flared up again, by that stage with the Internet, it was much easier to find more information. So um, I thought it was worth looking into these stories and um, seeing where they came from.
8: Ground zero for this rumor is the involvement of the so-called Royal Moyle, to which the Algemeiner article refers— Unfortunately, this delightful little rhyme is wasted on Dr. Darby, who pronounces it Mohel, which is technically correct. It's the Hebrew pronunciation, but still.
9: Well, I think the the factual basis appears to be, um, it's highly probable that um, Jacob Snowman, who was a prominent Mohel in Britain in the 1940s, did circumcise Prince Charles in 1940, and he was born in 1948. Dr. Darby is pretty
8: sure that the Windsors were just following middle-class fashion when they called upon snowman's services in 48. It was a time when circumcision was still somewhat popular in Britain, and lots of affluent Gentile families used moils, who were more experienced in the procedure than a typical surgeon. And Snowman was London's most prolific moil. So prolific, in fact, that many of the people writing these articles, passing along the rumor of a royal circumcision tradition, were circumcised by Snowman themselves. You know, a little claim to fame. Writing in the Telegraph, a columnist named Harry Wallop who was actually done by snowman's son, Lionel, described the circumcision tradition as a royal quirk since George I brought it over from Hanover when he became the king of England in 1714. Dr. Darby thought this sounded pretty unlikely on its face, like a king from Germany was going to be the one to start allowing the Jewish mark of difference to be left on royal babies, really? Apparently, Wallop's source for this factoid was a 2012 article in Haaretz, the Haaretz article attributed the claim to Geoffrey Alderman, a scholar of British Jewish history and, claim to fame, any guesses? Circumcised by the Royal Moyle, Jacob
9: Snowman. So when we contacted him, he explained that he'd been given this information by a former professor at um, Oxford called um, Cecil Roth back in the 1960s when he, was a, um, when he was an undergraduate there.
8: Roth, who edited the Encyclopedia Judaica, died in 1970. In a correspondence with Darby, Alderman says he'll try to track down a source for this claim,
9: besides the conversation, but he never provides one. Without any documentary or in any kind of other evidence, we don't think that professors of history ought to be making these kinds of statements on the basis of a very vague recollection of what an elderly Don said, like, 50 years ago.
8: In his exhaustive research, Dr. Darby found another progenitor of the royal circumcision myth, the British Israelite movement, which I had not heard of, but which is exactly what it sounds like, a crackpot racial theory from the 19th century that attempted to frame the British people as the direct descendants of the 10 lost tribes of Israel in a sort of predictably white supremacist effort to concoct a grandiose genealogical history for the people of Britain. It's not that any serious person in 2013 was still trying to push the British Israelite ideology, which was a fringe belief even during its heyday, but what did persist is the rumor that Queen Victoria was a believer in the theory, and even thought herself to be a descendant of the biblical King David, and so that's why she started having her royal males undergo the royal snip. Again, it's a line of reasoning that doesn't make a ton of sense on its face, British Israelites didn't follow Jewish practice. They didn't observe Shabbat or keep kosher, so it doesn't really follow that they would circumcise their boys. And for another thing, there's just about no evidence to support the notion that Queen Victoria actually believed this stuff. She kept extensive diaries, you know, which are now public record, and in the 40,000 pages we have available, there's nothing about King David or the British Israelites. Yet still, the claim appeared, and seemed to take on a life of its own, when a medical doctor and circumcision advocate named Edgar Schoen wrote about it in an article for Moment magazine in 1997, and then again in his 2005 book, in which he proclaims himself America's number one expert on circumcision.
9: Edgar Schoen is the key figure in how the certain Victoria story became widely disseminated. Um, Edgar Schoen was an American um, MD um, employed by Kaiser Health and he was a very vigorous proponent and advocate of um, circumcision, not only in the Jewish community but for basically for everybody and he was always um, writing articles for medical journals urging that everybody ought to be circumcised.
8: When Darby contacted Schoen for a source on the Queen Victoria claim, it also turned out to have come from a private conversation, indirectly gleaned from the Royal Moyle. Apparently, Snowman said something about it to his successor Sifman, and then Sifman passed it along to Schoen. The whole thing sounds like a game of Jewish telephone.
9: <laughs> ¶¶ that's when the story really sort of um, sort of gets loose and starts to flourish and become widely, if not believed, at least sort of widely spread. It was a classic instance of hearsay. Um, that's exactly the way in which urban legends typically develop.
8: In his article, Taking Down the Rumor, Darby concludes that the legend of a royal circumcision tradition is, quote, creative inflation deriving largely from stories told and transmitted informally among elite members of the Jewish community, beginning with Snowman himself. What strikes me is how much this conclusion has in common with what Darby wrote about in his 2005 book about how circumcision came into the British mainstream. Apparently Victorian doctors famous for their repressive attitudes on sexuality got it into their heads that Jewish boys were less likely than their uncircumcised peers to masturbate
9: yes, in fact it, the, the, it was the Jewish doctors who assured the, um, the other British doctors that this was the case remember that at that time masturbation was regarded as a very serious matter it was not only regarded as immoral it was regarded as physically harmful and so the Jewish doctors said well you know Jewish boys, you know, don't do this, so you should follow our practices and they'll be okay.
8: Looking at Jewish practice, you can kind of understand why a rumor like this might have been believed. The Talmud does expressly forbid masturbation. And as Darby points out in his book, Rabbi Eleazar's teachings prohibit men from touching their penises even when urinating. Better to have bad aim, they say, than a bad habit. Of course, there never was any proof that Jewish boys actually did masturbate less, nor, if they did, that they owed this self-discipline to their being circumcised. But when I asked Dr. Darby why Victorian Jewish doctors would have been so eager to pass along this canard, he sounds, well,
9: circumspect. Well, no, no, I I don't really have any um, views on that, I'm afraid.
8: And uh, why is it, do you think, that the Jewish community um, would have been so proud of uh, Dr. Snowman for his role in the the circumcision of Prince Charles and the the idea of a tradition of circumcision?
9: Well, I I honestly don't, I can't really answer that question. I think that's more a question perhaps that you could answer. Um, I can speculate, in fact, more than speculate on the motives of later people who the the figures who later propagated this story but as for the original feeling of pride i think i think it's a natural a natural feeling that the that that um uh it would be a good counter against um discrimination and anti-semitism to have this kind of connection with the british establishment so i think it's a natural um sort of feeling
8: if you haven't already guessed it dr darby is one of academia's foremost critics of circumcision which might help explain why he went to such great lengths to knock down a couple of ill-sourced rumors about a royal circumcision tradition. As you might imagine, his life's work hasn't done much to endear him to Jews.
9: Well, yes, I've often been accused of anti-Semitism, but um I point out that I'm actually trying to protect the human rights of um, Jewish boys rather than uh, rather than to do them any harm. but i don't I don't um, advocate any kind of um, coercive approach on these issues. Um, and to argue that something is morally wrong is not the same thing as to argue that it should be um criminalised or anything of that kind.
8: I'm definitely not comfortable labelling Dr.
9: Darby who has, if nothing
8: else, obviously done his homework as an anti-Semite. Though at the same time, I'm not exactly comfortable with just how much of his homework seems to be about uncovering the myriad ways in which elite Jews throughout history have perpetuated falsehoods to boost circumcision's reputation. But overall, I'm grateful for Darby's research. It's good work. And the thing is, I can totally see Jews doing this. And I get why the myth of circumcising the royals would have persisted in London's Jewish community as a kind of feeble self-assurance that they were safe in Britain. Like, don't worry, you know? We're in the inner sanctum. We literally have them by the balls.
0: That was producer Noah Levinson with Robert Darby
7: and the question of the British monarchy's royal penises. And I've gone 42 years without thinking about Prince Charles's penis once. And now, sadly, that streak has been broken. (laughs)
6: As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streety.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y.
5: All right, before we get any deeper into this, let's make sure we're clear on the details about what the heck a Jewish circumcision, also known as a bris, actually is. Rather than trust our experts, let's listen to bimbom.com's take on the Lech Lecha Parsha about the covenant that defines the Jewish people.
1: Most people know the Hebrew word Brit, or the Yiddish word, bris, from the ritual circumcision of a Jewish baby boy on his eighth day, followed by bagels, cream cheese, and schmoozing. But the word Brit alone does not actually mean circumcision. The word Brit means covenant and appears many, many times throughout the Hebrew Bible. But what exactly is a covenant? Covenant is just a fancy word for an agreement of commitments and promises between two sides. In this week's Parsha, God and humanity, specifically Abraham, enter a Brit, or a two-way pact. What are the conditions of this so-called deal? Abraham's commitment is to obedience and righteousness, to walk before God and be pure. God's promise is to provide children and land. God promises to make Abraham the father of a great nation, like the multitude of stars in the sky, and that they will inherit the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. The sign of this covenant, sealing the deal, so to speak, is the Brit Milah, circumcision of the flesh which Abraham and his household and all his future descendants are commanded to do at the end of this week's Parsha. Not to worry, although circumcision is clearly a very male ritual, Abraham's wife Sarah, along with her descendants, also becomes a partner to the covenant when God blesses her and changes her name. Abraham is physically transformed by virtue of entering the covenant. Perhaps this very physical, and needless to say, uncomfortable, change is meant to symbolize that while fulfilling the covenant promises great reward and blessing, it will not come without pain and suffering. In fact, Abraham's own personal story contains uncertainty, struggle, and hardship. In this one parshah, the poor guy encounters famine, infertility, family disputes, and tribal war. Abraham himself questions the conditions of the covenant. He straight up asks God, What will you give me? Since I am childless and you have given me no seed. It is a central element of Judaism that Abraham is seen as the father of the Jewish people and that through him, this covenant is transmitted to future generations who promise to pursue justice and righteousness and in return are promised great divine rewards. But like Abraham, doubt and struggle, and even hardship are a part of that package deal.
7: So, you know, circumcision is a very male-centric thing indeed, uh, by design, but we thought it would be very interesting to hear the perspective of mothers, of female moils, uh, and Stephanie Butnick sat down with Dr. Emily Blake and with Sarah Fredman-Ader, an Orthodox woman who surprisingly had some mixed feelings when the time came to circumcise her own son.
6: I'm here with Emily Blake, a moyle working in the tri-state area and a board-certified OBGYN and trained reproductive endocrinologist. As a moyle, she works with families of every Jewish denomination, and in 2014, she was named one of America's top moyles. She was the only conservative moyle and the only woman included on the list. If her name sounds familiar, it's because she was the moyle at David Walter Oppenheimer's Briss this past fall. I'm also here with Sarah Fredman-Ader, who works at the Bronfman Center at NYU. She has thought a lot about this issue and has approached it from both a personal and academic lens. I'm so glad to be here with you both. Dr. Blake, you're the first moil we are talking to on our first ever circumcision episode, which means you're tasked with answering the big question of why we do this.
4: Oh, my God. Please. Well, because it says so in the Torah. Isn't that sufficient enough?
6: Sure, but this seems like something that requires a lot of you know, backstory? Like why we do this thing to all of our sons?
4: You know, there is no good answer to that. That's, That's the hardest part of all is it's just something that's in the Torah that we are told we do. This is our covenant. This is how we know that we are God's people is because God says, I'll be your God. And we agreed that we would circumcise our sons. It is a interesting, perhaps strange, ritual. Um, But it is something we have done for thousands of years. I mean, they estimate at least 3,800 years we've been doing this. And yet I cannot give you a good answer. I could tell you that there's probably some medical benefits from what we do. Um, I could say that the way it's described and discussed and the Level of care in terms of health and risks that there must that there might have been um, some health benefits back then that we aren't even aware of today because they talk about you know if there if there's a risk of hemophilia like they go through all the concerns about hemophilia and the, uh they're so specific in it. Um, that it would make at least me wonder that perhaps there's something there that we aren't privy to at this time um, that motivated them to say that this was an advantage for men to be comfortable sexually. I I, I don't even begin to know what it might have been. But that's the hardest question to answer because— The only answer seems to be, it's what God asked of us.
6: And so is it a commandment? How do we classify it?
4: It's a mitzvah. And it's our relationship with God.
6: And so of all the mitzvot that have dropped away over the years, this one is one that really has stuck around. And it's the thing that unites, for the most part, like Jews across the spectrum, from the most Orthodox to the most Reform, who don't do anything else Jewish, but they circumcise their child. Why do you think this has such sticking power i
4: don't know but it's a really fascinating thing i get calls from people who are like i never fast for yom kippur and i don't go to synagogue but i had a
6: baby boy and i want to do a bris it's really interesting so we talk a lot about the bris as a mitzvah that is commanded to the father but what about the mothers um where are they in this story sarah what happened when your son was born
3: before I had a son I thought about circumcision actually um, before I had my son when I was in graduate school I received uh, two masters from NYU and I wrote a lot of papers and did a lot of research on this particular topic Um, and I remember in my first paper that I wrote I said um, I, I wrote about circumcision and then I spoke about having a daughter and and sort of my thoughts about what would happen should I have a son and I wrote there's no question, of course, I'm going to circumcise my son. Um, And I know that mothers get worried because you think it's going to hurt. That wasn't my concern because every man that I've ever met pretty much has been circumcised, seems fine, doesn't remember it. Uh, You know, they give the baby a little schnapps and and the baby goes to sleep. So that wasn't my concern. Um, And then my son was born and it became much more difficult because I was holding this perfect child in my hand, uh, that this was how either he was born, this is how God created him. Who am I to pay someone actually quite a lot of money to perform unnecessary surgery without anesthesia? And especially my son was in the NICU uh, for 36 hours after he was born. So knowing that he had been through this, that, that we had this traumatic event, and then he was fine. And then having someone cut his body, which was so perfect, what became much more difficult. It wasn't the pain that I thought he would experience, but the why am I doing this to my perfect child? Also, to be honest, I had never before like really seen up close what an uncircumcised penis looks like, and I hadn't noticed how dramatically different it is. I think that I'd thought that like it was more of a little cut at the tip, but there's more to it than that. And pre and post his, his um, bris, I was really shocked about the the physical transformation. And that was also disturbing to me.
6: The craziest thing is that mothers have to sort of submit their child like eight days after they've just had the baby. When I imagine you're all over the place hormonally, you would just gave birth and now you basically have to have everyone over Everyone you know is coming over to see you to see your son and to have this thing happen. So, what does it feel like on that day?
3: Well, I had a C-section, so I could barely walk. Um, I was very, very tired. I was very overwhelmed. Um, you, you get there, and and often the the mother goes into a separate room to nurse the baby, calm the baby down. People keep coming in to try to say hi to me, and I'm like, oh, I'm a little busy right now. Um, and then I, you know, I was really not so emotional during the. Th- Thing itself um i think my, my mother was holding my hand my mother-in-law was crying and i was like feeling guilty about it and and um something that that dr blake said before which was that i don't know we just do it for me i was actually part of me is very grateful that i never felt i had a choice so i am I consider myself an Orthodox Jew. I am halakhically observant. So I do keep Shabbat. I do keep kosher. To live the life that I live, there's no other option but to circumcise my son. No other thought could have entered my mind. But had I not been in that community, had that not been important to me, it would be very hard for me to imagine saying, I'm not going to do everything else, but this thing I'm going to do. Well, because
6: you never really thought that you wouldn't do it, mm-hmm. right? Like you were in a world where everyone does it.
3: There was no, had I not, Done it, my grandparents would have been <laughs> up in arms, my son would have been embarrassed in his school locker room. There was never a choice. So I'm actually grateful for not having to think about it because the whole thing is very strange to me.
6: So Dr. Blake, I'm curious how you think women should relate to this mitzvah, which you know in so many ways defines Jewish entry into the tribe. How do you explain it to to mothers who come to you before with questions?
4: The mother is immediately postpartum. And It's a really difficult ritual to do for anybody. It's difficult for the whole family, to be honest, but it's most difficult generally for the mother. um, I had a friend who was a midwife and who had assisted me when I did circumcisions in the hospital as a doctor. And we had done thousands together together. She had her son. She asked if I would come and do the brisk down in Philadelphia. I drove down, walked in, and she looked at me with this like, panic in her eyes and practically grabbed me by my lapels and said, I'd rather kill you than let you touch my baby. And it's really important, I think, to honor what it feels like to the mother because she has these incredible hormones just coursing through your body that say, protect this child with your entire being. Those are the hormones that when a child is pinned under a car and you hear the story of a mother picking up a car that's how powerful those hormones are. And so to then be able to do this with your son is an incredible thing. And the fact that you felt um, that it was preordained, that this was was not something you were going to go against just speaks to the depth of commitment, really, to what we believe. So I think there's something in that about how we really feel about our traditions and our God. The other thing is that for many people, they do struggle. And to me, that is also the essence of Judaism. So there's a way in which if you're very observant Jewish, you feel like there's no question I'm going to do this. But what you do in that moment is to really struggle in yourself because what you're doing is putting something else before your desires, your really strong, potent desires. The other side of it is those who might be more iffy about some observances who understand that this is a really crucial observance in Judaism, who struggle with it. To me, that's also the essence of Judaism, Word Israel means to struggle. So the fact that you come to this and it's not an easy, that it's not easy for anybody, whether you're sure you're going to do it or you're not sure you're going to do it, there's still an
6: internal struggle that feel, feels to me so essentially Jewish. I mean, it's so interesting that brises are sort of a social event, right? You're supposed to invite, you don't actually invite anyone, but people are p- people are told about it, and they're anyone is welcome, right? And and
4: I think that that can be a cutting edge, a, a two way sword on that as well. Um, there's certainly. <laughs> a way in which it's miserable to have all these people in your house when you're immediately postpartum. It's miserable to have all these people in your house when you're anxious about what's going to happen. But the other side of it is, and I've done circumcisions for non-Jewish couples who just need a circumcision. They had a home birth or something. And I've realized that also having some people in your home can be comfort to you because you're not alone in this moment. And this moment is always a bit tinged.
3: I, I want to play off of the idea of the celebration, um, because another issue that people have with circumcision that I've definitely thought of is not just the the surgery on the baby, um, but the gender dynamics of we do this to boys and we don't do this to girls. And we have this huge mandated celebration when boys are born and nothing actually mandated when girls are born. And it's quite common now to have uh, what's called a simchat bat or some sort of celebration when a girl is born to show that. You're just as excited, but it doesn't have to happen at eight days. Um, you can say, let's wait two months. Um, and there's, it doesn't come with the same sort of traditional weight. And we always talk about a bris being welcoming into the Jewish community. Um, and, and girls don't have that, um, which is another modern issue that people have with yeah. the ritual. As a feminist, I have
4: struggled a lot with this. And what is the message we're giving? And at least what gives me some sense of comfort or something is when I sort of realized, you know, the biggest ritual we do, everybody carries this out. It's all very male-centric, but we are matrilineal religion. And so all of a sudden, I'm s- stuck, struck with this, this beautiful irony that it's as if to say, well, Really, we love our daughters. So, we have to do this whole big thing with our sons because it's only the daughters that assure us of our continuity. It's the daughters that make sure we go on for another generation. It's the daughters we really need to fell about. And our sons are a little more iffy because it's going to depend on who they marry or who they have children with. And so, we do this whole big thing as
6: if to say they're more important. But in a way, they're not. I love that, flipping it on its head. Dr. Emily Blake, Sarah Fredman-Ader, thank you guys so much for being here. Dr. Blake, how do people book you if after hearing this, they want you for their son's
4: for their sons' breach? <laughs> they can call me on my phone, which is 917-405-0696. And they can shoot me an email, which is mymoyle at yahoo.com. That's M Y. M-O-H-E-L at yahoo.com. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.
6: Stephanie Butnick,
0: thank you for sitting down with What a great conversation. Dr. Emily Blake and Sarah Fredman-Ader. That was terrific.
6: Our producer Josh sat down with Haim Leiter, who's a mohel in Jerusalem, and he talks to him about something called mitzitzah bepeh, which is a highly controversial form of circumcision that some Jews practice. In addition to being a mohel, Haim has started a lot of activism work around circumcision, and he's created something called Sefer HaBrit, an organization committed to protecting both the sacred ritual of brit milah and the children who undergo
2: it. Uh, I had a, this one case where I got contacted by a father, um, he asked me if I came to Tel Aviv to do britot, And I said, yeah, yeah, I come to Tel Aviv to do britot." He said, great. In the context with him thereafter, it was like everything was sort of fuzzy. I didn't understand what was going on. I didn't understand what his role was. I thought he was the father. Then later I thought he was some sort of social worker. And he said to me at one point, the mother is not, the mother's, only the mother is going to be there when you do the bris. And I said, well, that's not possible. I said, I need somebody to hold the baby. And he said, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll try and see if I can be there. Anyway, he said, meet me at the Tel Aviv Mall, this mall in Tel Aviv, whatever it was. And I said, okay. So I thought maybe they'll get some sort of restaurant with a back room or something. Like, there's lots of different places that these things happen. Restaurants is not uncommon in Israel, but it was like this industrial mall of sorts. I kept saying to these restaurants, is there anything happening? And they said, no, 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 no. Finally, the guy calls me, says, I'm outside. So I come outside, and there's this van, and I and I get into the van, and I s like, oh, my God, what's going on? And then I hear something behind me, and I turn around, as we're driving, turn around, and the mother is behind me, holding the baby in her arms. No car seat of any kind, no nothing, and I'm like, oh, God, what is going on? They take me onto this dirt road, and there's dogs barking on the side. I mean, it looked like something out of... Snatch or something, you know the movie and I was like what is going on here? They're gonna I was like they're gonna murder me and take my tools. That's what's happening right now So sure it was over and they take me to this like one level Caravan kind of a apartment thing. I don't know what it was and they bring me in and it's just the two of them um, And the guy looked like he was wearing paint a painters outfit, you know Like he was if he had just come from painting and he sat down he did the you know And I, I got like a little nervous with it all, but I said, you know what like let's just focus on the bris." So we focused on the bris and, and as it was done, they had some rugelach and some soda. Fine. We start to drive back. He leaves the mother and the baby there afterwards and he, he drives me back to the mall where I was parked. As we're driving, I said, he said, please don't be in contact with me tomorrow. Um, I'm going to be with my kids. So I, I don't know where I got the gumption to ask, but I said, how did the two of you meet? And he said, I was painting her house. And I went, Okay, and then you know, as we say in Hebrew, nafalat simon, like the the coin fell, and I went, okay, even extramarital affairs need a bris.
5: Wow. Yeah, no, like, wow.
2: Chaim lighter I was born in Philadelphia. Spent time in New York studying for some time, and then uh, made Aliyah, immigrated to Israel in 2007. And then started studying uh, Brittany Law with none other than my dentist. You know, I've been doing it for about 10 years now. It all began, um, I was at a Bris, and somebody turned to me and said, you know, It's a great source of side income if you're a rabbi, because you have all this downtime in the middle of the day. So I started thinking about it. That was the first sort of thought process. And I uh, decided that if there was any way I was gonna actually do it, I needed to do the Happy Gilmore version of getting prepped and excited, right? So Happy Gilmore, if anyone's ever seen the movie, right? Steps in front of, uh, a, a batting cage and gets slammed in the face with the balls until he's tough enough to be able to be a hockey player, right? That was his training. That was basically what I did. I walked up and I and watched got every. got slammed br- in the
5: face with balls? There you go.
2: There you go. And I wasn't going to say it myself, but I, uh, I basically watched every brisk that I could to make sure that, you know, I could stomach what needed to be stomached. Once I knew I could see it and, and handle it, um, I started doing more learning. And the more learning I did, I just sort of thought it was one of the more amazing uh, meets vote that we have. So tell me about the first time. Um, oh, the nerves were probably out of the roof. You know, you're really nervous. You're really ner- I mean, like I, I have nerves every time I do it I'm gonna be honest like if you, you can't not have nerves when you're doing it Maybe when you get past 30,000 or something some people will probably say like it's like nothing like clipping nails or something Who knows but um, but from from my vantage point? I still I think it's a good thing It keeps you on your toes, but I got there. I was very nervous um, and I remember uh, the boy was was basically ready, I got him all ready. I, what you do is you take a cloth and you sort of wrap it around the legs so that his leg, and then the, the sandak, the person who's holding the baby, um, puts his hands on the legs, and so it's like double security. Um, so I got him ready, and I remember I looked and I said, okay, this is this is it, big man, it's just me and you. And I, I remember the, the cut itself was totally anticlimactic. The cut itself, um, I expected to be this overpowering, sort of nerve-wracking, emotional moment, and it, and it came to be that what really is doing a breach is what comes after the cut. If you think that that part is an intense moment, then everything thereafter where you're dealing with bleeding and bandaging and, cu- and trying to you know, stop the bleeding and people are standing around, tapping their toes, looking at you. They just want their bagel. What are you doing? You know, and you're trying to make sure that everything's safe for this child. Right? That's really the intense moment that I've always found. What was amazing about this experience was the, the couple, they named the baby Nachshon. Now, Nachshon, for those that know, right, in, this, in the Midrash, is the person who first stepped into the, the sea when the sea split. And he went all the way up until his mouth until he was choking. And that's where mi chamocha and mi kamocha comes from, because he's actually choking on the water when he says the, the, the words to God, right? And so that was the first person to step into the sea. And he was basically the first person to step into the sea of my uh, work. <laughs> Here in America, the majority of the Mohalim use a thing called a Mogain. A Mogain is opposed to a Magain. A Magain means a shield. Looks like a square piece of metal, but it goes into like a mustache at the top. You insert the foreskin into that Magain, and then everything you're going to cut is above, and everything you're not going to touch is below. But a Mogain, was created by a rabbi, an Orthodox rabbi here in America years ago when he was doing uh, so many britoats for Russian immigrants that he could not come back the second day to take down the bandage. So he created this object, and what it does is it causes hemostasis, right? Which means there's gonna be no bleeding, basically. And when I first saw it years ago, I said, You didn't put a bandage on. And he said, It's not bleeding. And my mind just kind of warped around. I couldn't wrap my brain around what was going on, you know, because every time I do a cut, there's bleeding. In doing that, most of the mohalim in America cut off less than the mohalim in Israel do. But in Israel, most of the mohalim, it, it, the reason it's not prevalent there is that the rabbinic organization in Israel says that it's something which is not halakhically permissible. So even those who might want to use the Mogain feel that they are, in the Hebrew it's motzi shemra, they're going, to, they're going to give them a bad name. Other mohalim find out that you're using a Mogain. they're going to talk about you and say, hey, he's doing something that's not halakhically permissible.
5: Wait, so tell me what that has to do with the Russians?
2: So when all the Russians uh, arrived to America, um, they needed circumcision because uh, th- at the time, the Soviet Union was not allowing free expression of religion, and Jews were not allowed to circumcise themselves, they weren't allowed to practice religion. So when they came to America, most of the, uh, the, the arrivals were adults who had not yet been circumcised. There was a, a Moyle who, he had been doing lots of burrito for the Russians, and this guy, He set him up, which means he put on the Mugain, everything was ready to go, and the Russian guy in broken English stuck his hand down and said, like Avraham, and asked for the knife, and he did it himself. I know, I know. (laughs) That is insane. So basically at this point, my career has taken sort of a two-pronged attack, right? On the one side, Um, There's the everyday Brito that I do, which are lovely and wonderful, and I love what I do. Um, And on the other side is this organization that I built, which, yes, has a lot of informational pieces, but it also has a whole wing of advocacy. Matsitsa is probably the issue that I'm most passionate about at this point in my career. Um, If done directly, where the mouth actually comes into contact with the cut, which is there's an element of blood being drawn during the, the, the bris process, um, if there's direct contact between the moil and the baby, actually nobody's safe. The baby's not safe, right? Because the baby can get herpes or other, any other infectious disease. And any dentist will tell you the mouth is the dirtiest place and there's no way to clean it. Every parent should be asking their moil to do it with a tube because there are a lot of moholim out there who will do it with a tube if they're asked. But if you don't ask, they're not going to necessarily do it. And my, I, myself, always use a tube. If a parent ever asks me and says, you know, but we want you to do mitzitza bapeh, it's called, actually with mouth contact, I will tell them that they need to find another moil. I don't think they should actually find another moil. I actually think they should never do it because they're putting their, their children in life-threatening danger. My friend, at his second son's bris, I walk in and I see this other, I don't see the moil that I knew, and I said to the mother where, who's doing the bris, and, and she said, oh, there he is over there. I see a guy, black hat, pay us down to his shoulders. And I turn to the father and I say, you know you're going to have to ask him not to do mitsitsa pepe. And he says, oh, don't worry, he does like a thousand a day. And I said, that's the problem. If he does a bris in the morning on a baby that has any type of infectious anything, he could have that in his mouth. By the time he does the next one and the next one and the next one, they all have it, right? That's how it works. That's why dentists use gloves. That's why you should also use gloves when you do brito Another issue, which I'm sort of championing on the side. But this issue... Right, So I, he said to me, all right, I'll go, I'll go talk to the to the moil. He comes back to me and he says, don't worry, he does it with wine in his mouth. And I said, I could spray Lysol in a dumpster. Is it clean in there? So I had made a decision, I think, that if I have any wind that uh, a friend, person I know in the community is using a moil who's gonna do Matisse-Bippet, I don't wanna have to go to, the, I won't go to the bris. It's just not something I'm comfortable with and I don't wanna be part of it. So at that bris itself, um, I stayed. I don't think I ate, which actually is a big deal. You're always supposed to eat at a Brit Mila. It's like a they say you're going to be excommunicated from heaven if you don't eat. But I felt uncomfortable with the entire thing. And this was actually part of the the, the whole thing that led to Sefer Habrik, because these people basically went to their friends and said, hey, um, who should we use as a moil? And that was it. The person that the friends said, that's the person that they went with. And there was no... Um, extra checking, there was no anything, and they said, "Well, how are we supposed to know?" And I said, "Well, you go to a bris, you go check him out, you talk to him on the phone, you ask him what he does, and you say, do you do mitzitzah b'peh?' And if he says he won't do it with a tube, then you say, especially in Jerusalem, you got plenty of other you know options." So he said to me the next day, my friend, you know, we thought for a second about possibly using you, you know, and telling you to do it, but it was five o'clock in the afternoon, and then the end of the day was coming, and it's the eighth day, and then and I. I mean, I actually found it on the records after saying this to him, but I said, I would have told you to wait till the next day. It's pikuach nefesh. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're endangering the child's life. So thank God he was fine. The, the child was fine. But it is a serious issue. And it is an issue that parents need to know the ins and outs of brit milah, because it, it's similar to, uh, you know, when your, when your child gets surgery. If your child's going to get surgery, you know what's going on in that surgery. And you make sure that it's safe for them and you're getting the best person to do it for them. So I'm in the process of building a registry for all of the um, Mohalim, please God, in the entire world that will not do Matsitza Bepeh. They will only do it with a tube or otherwise. Um, and that will hopefully be on the website sooner than later. And it'll have links, hopefully, to all their websites. And so if you get stuck in a spot where you say, I'm using somebody and I find out the day before that this is what they're doing and I don't want them to do it, which you shouldn't, you can go onto the website and, and find a Moil who can do it safely for you.
5: What percentage of, of these do you get the phone call from the frantic mother three days before going, I don't want to do this. This is crazy. This is mutilation. Like,
2: yeah. I haven't gotten the frantic, frantic call, but I've definitely had lots of conversations. Um, when, I do, when I do have conversations with people, I tend to start you know, even though it's a, I always think like, it's the, it's maybe the worst place to start, but I like to get it out of the way in the beginning. When they ask, I say, you know, we do this because God said so, like, that's where it starts. And then we go on to the rest of the stuff. Right. And there's plenty of stuff to talk about. There's plenty of medical benefits, which are highly proven, right. But when it comes down to it, the best defense I've ever heard for Brit Mila um, was someone said, when you look at a Brit Mila and you look at it locally, right there's no way that you're not gonna think it's mutilation. Right, it just, it's on on the local level, you're hurting a child, right? You're hurting a child, who wants to hurt a child, especially an eight-day-old child, or even less? He said, but when you think about it on a broader Jewish spectrum, and that this is about the continuity of the Jewish people, right, and this is how we keep the Jewish people alive, which I do believe that it is, then the amount of pain that this child experiences for that time period is very minimal in the grand scheme of things.
0: great conversation with Klein Leiter, who, by the way, is the son-in-law of our publisher, Morty Landau. So we're, we like to keep it all
7: in the family. A little nebetez. And I don't think I will ever be able to scrub the mental image of that Russian gentleman <gasps> circumcising himself. <laughs> no, if so Abram did questions. it, i do it myself. They're so hard give hardcore. Give me vodka, give me knife. So oh, hard. Oh,
0: lordy. So hardcore. I feel so unmanly right now. If my son ever becomes an intactivist and complains about what I did to him, <laughs> I'm going to say, look, man. There are men in there are men in Israel. There are Russian immigrants circumcising
6: in Russia. Themself. Circumcises themselves. but we don't say
7: there are men in Israel. I'm pretty sure there's a man in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's another who did this.
6: And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyers in JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka who made the famous harosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 26th. And will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show.
0: Lizzie Skernick is a writer and a critic and an editor. She's the author of That Should Be a Word, a much-needed lexicon for the modern era, and a really terrific book called Shelf Discovery, the teen classics we never stop reading. She's she's like a a, a young adult lit maven and a word maven, and she's been on the show before, and she also was a single mother by choice. A few years back, she had a son by herself, and we chatted with her and discussed her feelings about circumcising her son.
6: Welcome. Welcome, Lizzie. Hi. Could you... Tell us a little bit about your decision to have a baby and
10: about Javier. Um, so I decided to have a baby when I was 38 by sperm donor, uh, by choice. And uh, it took me a little while to find the one I wanted. And the one I found was actually the first one uh, that I had liked. <laughs> but then, um, then I had Javi when I was just turning 40 and we live in Jersey City and he's a lunatic and delightful. And I thought he was a girl for half of the pregnancy. So when I found out he was a boy, whether or not to circumcise was sort of the first of the penis issues that I've had to deal with.
6: So I'm guessing there are multiple issues. So how did what did you mean you thought it was a
10: girl? I just, I, I spiritually felt he was a girl. Okay. I could I could see her hair <laughs> and eyes. And, and then when I found out he was a boy, oh, actually, it was from seeing his penis. We were doing the 22 month um, exam. And I was with my two friends in the room because everybody wanted to see. And they were going through the organs. And all of a sudden, Javi was turned on his side. And I saw this total erect penis and I said is that a penis and the woman said we're not at that part yet (laughs) I was like yeah that's a penis so I have a boy so even though I wanted to keep it from myself I wasn't able to because there it was there it was just
6: waiting waiting for you so at what point is like circumcision on your mind
10: uh Do you know, it never went on my mind because everybody puts it on your mind the minute they know that you're having a boy. It's the first question everyone asks you, are you going to circumcise? And I had honestly never really thought about it. I would say almost everybody I ever slept with, Jewish or not Jewish, was circumcised. And I had one friend who was very anti-non-circumcised men. She thought it looked disgusting. So I, I, I always had a slightly negative association with that just because of her rants about it. Um, but I did think about it only because every Jewish person asked me what I thought about it. And then I was like, oh, I guess I have to think about it. It's so funny that this
6: like highly personal decision, everyone's just like, so you're going to do it?
10: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the more personal decision, the yeah. more people want to know about it. The more people want it. to weigh in, talk uh, about it. <laughs> yeah. Although it's partly because they don't want to talk about anything real. They probably don't want to hear the boring details of your life. Mm. They're like, let's hit the high points. Like, what are you doing with your kid's penis? Yeah. And are you getting married? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Really, Jews do not hold back. I It wasn't just Jews. Like, there was some—I was very—I had a real Facebook pregnancy, um, and there would be these long threads. I think there must have been one with, like, 125 comments and people arguing and putting up, like, you know, attaching documents. And I was like, I'm just not reading this at all because— I, I didn't even sign up for a penis. So, I mean, I literally didn't have a penis when I got pregnant. So I really did not sign up for a penis. So at a certain point, you have to start obsessing over his penis, right? When? Well, I think at some point, I, I also had a boyfriend who was a nut who was very resentful about the fact that he had been circumcised. And he would say things like, you know, and it really cut down on my sexual pleasure. And then I was always like, but how do you know? You never had yes. this sexual period of...
6: Yeah, that is that is really interesting, because that is what, what some men say, right? They're like, "This I was mutilated, I can't feel the same thing, sensitivity, whatever. And you're actually, that's a great point. It's like... You might just be having bad sex, like (laughs) totally. Also, he always
10: seemed happy. It was even more (laughs) ridiculous because he would never had any trouble with anything. I just so funny. He liked to grouse, but um, the minute I decided that health wise it was much smarter, I was like, fine. You know, I'm just very tech. and, And it because I'm not a particularly religious Jew, but I'm a very Jewish Jew. Um, so it would have felt very strange to not circumcise him, but then it also felt like it's not my penis. This is not my genitalia. So I really don't know if I should be messing around with it. Maybe it's not fair, even though I've known trillions of circumcised men in my life, you know, and they seem fine still, uh, you know, it's, I've never... It would have been the first time I decided to allow someone to take a knife to someone I loved. At eight days old. Not eight. See, this is what I did. So when I finally decided to circumcise him, I... When do you mean by finally? Like how how late are we in the game? I think it was probably like a month before because it was the first time I mentioned it to someone and they sort of idly said you know oh the institutes of health recommends it and i was like great (laughs) i trust them (laughs) i trust them way more than i trust any of these people on my facebook thread so and and because once it was a health issue it's very easy for a mom to be to say of course i'm gonna do that yeah
6: did you feel in any way that it would be making us like that not doing it would be making
10: like a statement against the your Judaism in some way? No, but I felt no, not not against my Judaism, although I did feel, you know, when I was younger, whenever I went into a church, I did feel a little strange. And so it probably would have felt strange in that way. Um, and but I also felt like I would have been making a statement about keeping babies naturally in a way that I don't feel, you know, I was already on medication when I was pregnant, you know? So it was like, I don't know what kind of purity I'm trying to maintain here. I mean, I don't really believe, I mean, I do, I try to, you know, not give him hormone, you know, laden foods and stuff, but, you know, I grew up on Steakums, so I just, I'm not really that kind of mom and I, it, you know, I never figured out the sling. So I feel like I, I I didn't have the strong feeling about keeping things real that other people do. Also, I think I also had a boyfriend. I love how all my penis stuff is through my boyfriend. No, that's
6: true. It's like for a lot of, until you have a child, this is a very hypo like this is only a, a sexual thing. Like, it's, totally. it's very strange.
10: Either way, I was just, all I wanted to do was to have it be as healthy for him in the long run as possible. But I did know that I did not want to have a bris because I'm not a religious Jew. My family are not religious Jews. None of us were. And I wouldn't have known where to find a moil in the first place or known what prayers you say over a penis. And (laughs) I guess I really feel very strongly that the clergy should just stay out of genitalia, like it. <laughs>
6: it's like a pretty, you know. <laughs>
10: yeah, seems it's pretty it's, it's not a strength area for them, <laughs> and you know, it, especially with children, you know, it's. In a literal, it's very invasive. You know, they can talk about God if they want and how to be a good person. They do not need to be involved in penises and nothing vaginas. Below the waist, yeah, or Maybe even neck down, neck down. No, <laughs> nothing that's not abstract. I would say actually, just keep it abstract. It is, you know, because it's it's like on the other hand, you know, using a moil is a little bit like a menstrual hut. You know, it's it's all of this superstition that doesn't really have anything to do with how we function in the world nowadays. And I would never, ever, ever inflict anything on my son because it was religious um, or because I felt like I would be rejecting something. So did you do it in the hospital? Yes, what I did, the way the way I justified it to myself is that A, my OBGYN was a surgeon. Um, as it happens, and also one of those surgeons who loves being a surgeon. And I decided what we would do is do it literally the next morning. And he was born at 8.15, when he was still in a state of complete chaos, having no idea what the hell was happening, and everything was painful and insane. But I did want to be there. Um, You know, there were so many parents who always— shove, you know, just say, take him and do it. And I just felt like that was insane. I was like, I'm not letting anyone cut into my son's penis without being there. But so I was standing there. And I think the doctor um, at first was a little nervous because she thought, I was there, wanted to be there because I didn't trust her. Something mm. which was just absolutely not the case. And she had sewed me up the day before, so I yeah. implicitly, like, I totally, trust I totally you. trust you. You just did We're this to me. That. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then once she realized, and then they asked me, did I want to hold the sugar water? You know, because mm. you drip it into their mouth. And I said, no, 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 I don't need to do that. Um, but then she started to like show off. And it was awesome. She took his penis and inserted these like I almost—they sort of look like this microphone stand. It was—they were sort of, you know, bat when bat wing shaped pieces of metal and she had 3 of them and then she she just used it to open up the area around the head of the penis so that the skin was sort of separated you know so that the bloom was showing or whatever and then for like 25 minutes she proceeded to make these i have no idea what the hell she was doing but i was like he is getting the best circumcision that anybody what ever was had to do it I don't know she was doing something and I watched her the whole time I mean but it, whatever it was it was like a work of art you know it was like shaving the artichoke oh I have god. no idea it, it 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 did not need to heal at all basically it was almost like pre-healed um but I I swear to god I think she decided to try out new techniques on him that she had recently mastered just because. And I was totally all for it. But it was great because I really felt like it was the first time I got to be his mom, like experience something with him that was difficult. And even more so than birth, because the birth was actually super easy. So I felt like we had sort of breezed through that. And the circumcision was my first... um, act of being a mom to him and making a choice for him, and especially making a choice about something that was not my body, you know, cutting off a part of the body. So I felt lucky about many parts of the pregnancy, but I felt really lucky about the circumcision.
6: Where can we follow you, find out more, pre-order your book?
10: (laughs) (laughs) I can't. You can't do anything. I'm just too busy with Javier. (laughs) You can probably... Friend me on Facebook or all of our listeners. All of our our listeners are immediately going to friend you
6: on Facebook. Friend
10: me on Facebook. (laughs) I, I seriously. Not doing anything public right now. I think if you want to talk to me, you have to become my close friend. That's amazing.
6: I <laughs> sign me up. Lizzie Skernick, thank you so much for being here
10: and being part of our circumcision episode. We'll play this for Javier one day. I'll let he can he can hear this at the same time as he finds out who his donor is. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.
0: That was Lizzie Skernick, writer, critic, editor, mom. All right, Stephanie, Liel.
7: Yes. Oh, yes.
0: There's a lot we got to in this episode, but there's a lot that we didn't get to. And when we do circumcision part, part two next year, we'll get to those things. But one thing we absolutely wanted to leave you all with was the real life story of someone who had undergone this procedure by choice as an adult, right? Because all the rhetoric is around the eight-day-old the eight boy this, the eight-day-old boy that. We leave no foreskin unturned. That's right. As it happens, our editor, Sophia Steinert-Evoy, knew a guy who, you know what, I'm just not going to say anymore. Here's Sophia Steinert-Evoy's friend, Christian, telling you about a little
5: episode in his life. Hey guys, my name is Christian, and you're about to hear a story about my penis. I know there's sometimes obscenity warnings in this show, but I just want to give a little extra warning because, uh uh-oh, my story is very graphic. Also, um, follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Uncle Zumba, at Uncle Zumba, uh, it's like if you had a have if you had an uncle who who he did Zumba, yeah. Uh, my junior year of college, I got circumcised, which uh, isn't when people actually normally do it. Um, is what I've heard. And uh, so I did it basically because it started to hurt uh, when I, you know, had sex or uh, uh, j- uh, jacked off. And so, I mean, I, I was like, maybe I need to do it. It's always been a thing that's kind of like been on my mind, like growing up, because I had like a different PP. I've been trying to think of a metaphor to use, because I've been trying to think of one for years to sort of like, you know visually like indicate like what's going on but basically there's just too much it was it's like if you if you oh okay here we go i just figured it out if you put a mushroom in a tube sock and you put them pull the mushroom all the way down and then close up the end of the tube sock and then don't let it out (laughs) that's like what i had (laughs) basically if you can imagine but that's a penis i had that growing up and i was like oh this is like weird but it's like ultimately works out fine and then my freshman year this thing happened that was crazy, where I was like, um, it was Halloween weekend at uh, Vassar College and I had a, a guest over and we were like trying to like, you know, go at it or whatever. And working up to this period, I've been trying to like, you know, cause I knew this wasn't like the standard penis based on like, you know, seeing them around um, just in the wild, like mine. Uh, and so up until this Halloween night, I've been kind of trying to like ease it out, you know, steadily, like see like, if I can get like the mushroom out or whatever and it just wasn't it was kind of happening ca- casually and then so fast forward halloween night i'm hooking up basically what happened is the mushroom came fully out of the tube sock but turns out the tube sock was really tight <laughs> and it couldn't go back in and then so the person kept trying to be like let's keep going and it my it hurt so much and i was like oh no no what if we didn't like i was trying to like not to say like oh i'm in massive pain because it was like a first hookup you know because that's like a big faux pas to be like i'm dying and so i just was like what let's lay down for a little bit like let's let's, oh nap let's take a nap and then so we take a nap and then the next morning wake up she's like gone and then i'm like oh i hope my problem is gone and my the mushroom not in and it is uh gigantic. I'd never seen it so big in my life. I was like, what's going on? And it hurt so much. And then I, mean, I grabbed my phone and I Google, like, just all my symptoms. Penis hurts. Huge, giant mushroom. Sorry, I'm, I'm gigantic. And then ever, all it was like all the worst results you can imagine. Like, it was like, your penis will fall off. Like, actually, like, not like speaking hyperbolically, like, it said, your dick will fall off. Like, if you don't fix this. I was like, "Ruh-roh," and then so I, I called an Uber to, to take me to the hospital. And a bunch of doctors like just like put shots of anesthetic into my dick. I thought they were gonna have like a cool doctor way to fix it. They just like shot it my dick with anesthetic. Truly really put needles into my penis, and then just forcefully like, like again tube sock mushroom, just like shoving it like in like just with their fingers. And they were like, "Come on!" Like just like grunting doctors like taking turns like trying to like manhandle my uh, mushroom back into its sheath. <laughs> It still hurt, you know, you think you get needles in your dick, and it's like, it's not going to hurt at all, fully hurt still. And then, so so that kind of made me think, oh, you know, maybe something's wrong with my dick. (laughs) And so I kind of was like, I did some reading, and I was like, oh, there's some ways to like make it, you know, so it's like normal, so like the tube sock doesn't cause my dick to fall off. And so I started trying to like, kind of like stretch it and just, you know, just edge basically was like the directions online. It was just like edge a lot. Edging is when you uh, just like j- uh, jack off real slow and then don't come, but I was coming, but I was just I was just taking a, to be clear, I, w- I was coming. Should I say that again? I was coming. So uh, I did that for like a couple of years till uh, junior year. And eventually like, I was like, oh, I'm making progress. Cause I started, you know, I started being able to, I was like, oh, I could see The mushroom is coming out, it feels healthy. And then just at some point, jacking off and having sex just started hurting, just kind of in a mild way, uh, which actually you also don't want. And so I went to go see this doctor, this urologist. uh, uh, He was so cavalier about the whole thing. Like I really went in like, maybe I need to get circumcised. because I figured that would solve the problem because there's nothing to choke out my dick. and. I really was like going in with that as like a possibility because it's drastic you know but so i'm telling the doctor like oh maybe i need to get circumcised i don't know and uh he's like looking at a newspaper and he's like yeah yeah you're getting circumcised he didn't like air like he he wasn't looking at a newspaper but that was like his vibe you know like he was really like cavalier about it and he was like yeah we'll circumcise you and then there were some other options you could get circumcised or they could do a thing where they just like cut down the middle of your penis skin so you just like like it's like if you take a scissors to the edge of one tube sock so the mushroom can come out you know and so I was like, oh, that's insane. I don't want to have like a weird flappy. I mean, I don't know, maybe people have that, I'm sorry. But it seemed freaky. So I was like, I guess I'm getting circumcised. It was like, that, or use a bunch of creams. And I was like, this just seems easier. And also culturally, you know, I feel like the media is like, being circumcised is like cool, <laughs> you know? So I was like, I guess I'll get that like look. If you watch porn, everyone is. And you're like, okay, that's different. Um, I was just like, oh, I guess they're born with that. And then I found out, oh, no, it's circumcision. So I was like, oh, I could be like my heroes, (laughs) Uh, which would be cool. Uh, I was like, yeah, I guess I'll go for it. The doctor seemed so chill about it. Like, I was like, I guess he does them all the time, which it seems like he did. Because he just, it was like nothing to him. It was like like you asked if you could use the bathroom and there's like a substitute teacher. And he was like, yeah, whatever. Like, (laughs) Like, so casual. And I was like, okay, for sure. And so I... Was like, okay, I'm gonna get it now and like set a date to get circumcised, like at school. Uh I'm in the waiting room. There's a lot of people there. I don't know why they do every surgery at like 6 a.m. Like they all do them so early. Uh and they look me up and then they put the gas thing on me. And I really it was like I didn't see my doctor at all until like the last moment, and then he like shows up and he's like, Man, I'm here for the surgery. Probably like hungover. Uh, and then they put the gas. Thing on me immediately, I'm knocked out. It just really felt like they put it on me, and I woke up and I was like, "Oh, I am circumcised now!" Like it was really crazy. Like I've never woken up circumcised, and I was like, "Oh, this is really <laughs> a different, different thing." And I go home and I'm just bedridden uh, for like a week. So it was like a lot. I, I felt very bad during it. I didn't realize how much of my Self-worth was predicated on having like a functioning dick. Uh not that I was gonna use it, but I was just like, it'd be nice, you know. I just felt like really walking around like I was like a ghost. Like you'd <laughs> be like, oh yeah, you yeah, just got circumcised. Like it was such a weird thing to be like, Oh, what's wrong with you? And then it, it's like this whole conversation about like your dick. I felt like a grandma. I don't know why, but I was like, I feel like I'm <laughs> a listening strong grandma energy. Oh, Grandmas don't wear these, but for some reason this made me feel like a grandma, but I uh, couldn't wear pants. Any, you know, that was like a nightmare at pants. Uh, just anything touching. Like, like first it was like I had these like open stitches in my, uh, holding my penis together. And then just the head was very sensitive. Just like so many nerve endings just tucked away in a nice little cocoon for just 21 years. <laughs> and we're just like bare and screaming like at every moment. <laughs> Uh, and so if it like swung into anything, I was like, ah, like it was really like paralyzing. Uh, and I had just like walked very slowly trying to like maintain, like it was like, it was like having, trying not to move a pendulum at all. <laughs> like trying to just keep it like if you're walking around the pendulum's attached to you. But, uh, because of that, I didn't wear pants and I wore a, uh, like a, not a sarong, but I had this Delta airlines blanket that I use like a sarong. I like, can just wrap it around me and it was all I could wear. And, uh, so I just walked around the apartment with like a shirt and like this little like sarong on all the time. And, uh, it was a lot, it, it was, it was funny also. Cause I would tell people and they'd be like, what? And I'd be like, I know. Like when I tell them I'm, i got circumcised and, uh, oh, and then I, it was cool. Cause my teachers were really cool about it. I was like, Hey, by the way, I'm not going to be in class how to get circumcised. And then they were all like, Oh, <laughs> you're fine. <laughs> like, like really like. There's, like, no way he's making this up. they were like, all right, you're sad, dude. Like, really, like, gave me the slack, which I was, like, fucking thank you. <laughs> it looks good, which is cool. It isn't, like, all, like, fucked up. Because I was really scared. I was, like, oh, my dick's, like, fucked up for a while. Because it had been, like, healing for so long. Um, it is different. Uh, like, it is, like, sex used to be, like, I go in, I'm, like, pow. It's, like, all my, like you know, nerve endings on my head are like on edge, like every hair is standing right up you know, um, and it, it's for sure like less sensitive uh, so when I have sex it's kind of like, it's inter- It's still good, but it's interesting because it is like, there's a level of me being like oh yeah, like 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 I have to like kind of amp it up, like I'm more into it than I am, um, where before I was like really like just, I was like the honeycomb mascot I guess, like vibe wise and now I'm like mmm, sex, like I gotta, I gotta really like play it up a little bit because it is like not as like enticing, but it's cool. It looks cool. And so as far as that's concerned, good. I don't really wish I was circumcised as a baby just because I didn't really like know about my condition and things were like sick. Like I feel like it gave me a good frame of reference For like, like, I'm sort of like Blade in that I've walked like on both sides of the foreskin. You know what I mean?
7: Oh, my God. Oh,
0: my. Dianu. We would love to have your thoughts and comments on this episode. We crave nothing more then your mail at unorthodox at tabletmag.com and your voicemails at 914-570-4869. Who
7: knows? And your eight-day-old mails and your eight day old ma-
0: And your donations at tabletmag.com slash donate. All of it. But especially your voicemails. 914-570-4869. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? What should we have cut out? What?
4: Oh, what should,
0: I'm sorry. I keep reaching for the cut. What should we got have? in right under the knife? <laughs> got in right under the knife. And of course, if you liked listening to this episode as much as we liked making it, then uh, we might do another one for you. So, if you have circumcision stories, if you have your own crazy wacky tale. Or have I, always dreamed about being circumcised <laughs> on air with three very lovely Jews. Who will we will supply can the bagels? We can make it happen. We have a very large table here at Argo Studios. 914-570-4869. Tell us your feelings, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, and how we can get you on next year's circumcision episode. Before we leave you, though, Mazel Tov's of
7: the week, Liel, Chaim, Ben <laughs> Shmuel, George Leibovitz. Herschel Schmoichel Kerstofsky the Clown. Uh, Yeah, you know, this is is classic because this is the circumcision episode, Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to extend a hearty mazel tov to wonderful, excited, blushing new parents, Robin and David Morrison, who just welcomed Miles Jacob into this world. So Miles Jacob, have a rocking bris, welcome to the Jewish people, Robin and David Morrison, much mazel tov from all of us. Stephanie Butnick, have you a mazel tov? Speaking of new
6: additions to the world, I
7: want to send a big old mazel tov
6: to Russ and Daughters, which just opened its latest expansion in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. There's a huge production plant and also sort of a an area where you can eat and you can watch the bagels being made. You can watch the babka being made. And, you know. You can't have a bris without Russ and Daughters. So by the way,
7: when it comes to brisses, if I can't find a good moil, I would really like one of the counter people at the, yeah. Russ and Daughters. If anyone could cut something <laughs> this thin, that's true. That's the person I want with my son's penis.
6: And it's like it's perfect because you actually get them for the bris that's and then right. they stick around and they slice mm-hmm. the the fish for you that's with that's a right. different knife.
0: Absolutely. And uh, while we're talking about new additions, we go we go from uh, a truly profound one, you know, a, an actual Russ baby to okay. a to an appetizing store and. I'm going to throw in... um a, a new used bookstore is coming to New Haven. I want to give a Mazel tov to Sam at Gray Matter Books, which opens this week on York Street, right near the corner of Elm. It is going to be a uh, a wonderful addition to the New Haven literary scene, and I hope that all of you driving New York to Boston or passing uh, by 90, the ninety one ninety five corridor hop off and buy a book at Gray Matter Books. I'm I'm not on his payroll. I'm in fact quite the opposite. His money's not flowing to me. In fact, my money is going to begin flowing to him. So Mazel tov to Gray Matter Books. And
6: eight days in, you'll just go and cut all the ends of all the pages. <laughs> Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet
0: Magazine, on the web at tabletmag.com. You can get our newsletter by writing to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Put newsletter in the subject line. You can give us voicemails. We want them, 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise on our show. Email producer Josh Cross at jcross, that's cross with a K, at tabletmag.com. You can get unorthodox swag. There are no pictures of penises cut or otherwise on that swag. It's entirely tasteful. In fact, it's appropriate for babies of all genders at any age. Put it in your brisket. Put it in your brisket. There are onesies. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. Follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross with associate producers Shira Telushkin and Noah Levinson. Our editor is Sophia Steiner evoy Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Social media intern is Elazar Abram. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Mark Katz. We come to you from Argo Studios, where everything begins uncut and ends up cut. Ooh, shalom, friends.